This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Sustain. Here we talk about all things around open source sustainability. Today on our panel, we are lucky enough to have Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. And I am Eric Berry. And today our special guest is Giddy Morris. How you doing, Giddy? Oh, good. How is everyone doing? Uh, very good. Giddy is, is such an interesting name. Can you explain that? So it's shorthand for Gideon just makes life a little easier and a little less biblical in my day-to-day life. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So it looks like you have quite a history in software development. Can you give us a little background of yourself? Yeah. So I've been in the industry for almost two decades now, which makes me feel much older than I actually am. <laughs> I think I'm one of those very lucky people who's a second generation developer. Um, so I grew up in a home where my dad was already doing software engineering. So I sort of got my first actual hand in it as a 16-year-old, and I never really stopped. I've just kept on doing it uh, for the past almost 20 years. And I've worked in a whole variety of, of industries, but I think I'm less interesting than the topic at hand. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. So the reason we invited you on and we, uh, the way we found you originally was that you attended the uh, Sustained Summit back in London in 2018. I'd love to hear about what drew you to that event and maybe what you got out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So what I got out of it, we can maybe leave for later. What drove me to get there is, so I have been, so I've gone through ups and downs in my time in the industry, like a lot of other people. And a few years ago, I burnt out. Basically, I'd been doing a lot of work, both in my day you know, daily job and doing open source and supporting uh, newcomers to the industry. And there was just a point where I just couldn't stand the idea of getting up in the morning and writing code. And for someone who's been doing that for a living since the age of 16, uh, that can be quite a bit of a, you know, a shock to your system. And uh, there was a point where I almost left the industry and I decided to give it another shot and sort of take a hold of how I do things in the industry and and be a a lot more insistent about uh, addressing things like mental health, about keeping work-life balance uh, in a better place than where it was beforehand. And so I made my way back into the industry uh, and slowly got myself involved in open source again. And over time, as I started to take on mentees, and especially people who are new to the industry, I started to find a very interesting dynamic, which was a lot of uh, newcomers feeling a lot of pressure to get involved in open source. And uh, at the same time, also, I started to see these inklings of behaviors that had worried me in myself at the time. I felt like it was a topic that was worth discussing. You know, how do we actually support open source and newcomers into the industry? That's really interesting. I'm very curious to see, to hear what some of those inklings were that you mentioned. So I'd say the main thing that worries me in general within our industry is, and this is not really about open source, this is about the tech industry as a whole, is that we expect individuals to give a lot more than I feel is healthy. I think both in terms of hours of work and the pressure that we put on people. And I think it's much broader than just hours. I think the way that we as an industry tend to work is very 
uh, tricky. There's a lot of little issues that I worry about, such as putting a lot of pressure on people to work out of hours, putting a lot of like not investing enough in psychological safety within the environments that people work in. And that obviously extends into the open source world as well. And when you're taking on newcomers, they're feeling extra pressure to not just do the work that they're getting in their first job out of uni or out of bootcamp, but also a lot of sort of social pressure to get involved in open source. And so they're doing their, you know, 10 hours, 11 hours in their startup and then going home and sitting and trying to hack at some open source project. And I was starting to get a real sense of a sort of unhealthy balance that I'm seeing in pretty much all the people I was mentoring at the time. And, and I felt like I need to discuss this with people who are much hev- more heavily embedded in the open source community than I am to see if there are ways that we as a community can actually address that. Where do you think that pressure is coming from? So it's actually an interesting question where that pressure comes from. I think there's definitely the side of pressure to work very long hours and very hard within our industry in general, and that's related to you know money generally. Uh, but when we're talking about open source, I think it's something that I've noticed changing a lot over the last 20 years. The reasons I got involved in open source were very different than the reasons my dad got involved before me. And over the last 18, 19 years, I've seen it shift very much into what I would consider a sort of ego-driven in, you know, involvement in the open source community. People feel like in order to be the best version of a developer that they can be, they need to be high profile. They need to be, you know... 20,000 followers on Twitter because they're a core contributor to a big open source project. And I feel like a lot of uh, newcomers into the industry, especially when they're influenced by having come from a bubble like a uni or a bootcamp, they feel like for their measure of success is that they are, you know, big individuals contributing to open source publicly in such a way that they have followers and they go to conferences and speak about it. And I don't want to belittle people who do that, but there is definitely an impact on people who are new to the industry where they feel like in order to succeed in this industry, I need to be one of those people. And that is definitely an element that drives people into open source, which is not necessarily a reason I would want to get behind. But even if that's the reason people come into uh, contributing to open source, I hate to think that when they come into open source, they end up feeling like we as a community are forcing them to work in an unsustainable manner. I think that there's like two issues here. One is why people come into open source in the first place. And once they're in there, how do we support them? And are we creating an environment where they're burning themselves out the way that I did? And that's something that I just find myself thinking a lot about. Yeah. uh, Speaking of burnout, I hadn't really been that upfront with everyone, but there's a reason why we didn't have a sustain this year is because, I mean, multiple things, but most of it, it was just, I was completely burnt out and I didn't want to engage with anything. And I felt a little guilty, but at the same time with my past in burning out, I just had to like put myself first. So... I totally understand. And, you know, I know that you work for Elastic now, right? You know, when I was working on a startup called Mahalo, we started to use this uh, product called Elasticsearch. It was brand new. It was like 2010, 2011. And your CEO, Kimchi, I don't know if that's his handle. Is that his handle? Yeah, that's his handle. Uh, His name is Shai. Shai. Um, Yeah. (laughs) We had a question that we posted in IRC. For those who don't know what IRC, it's like Slack, but in a terminal. And so it's like Slack for old people, right? Exactly, exactly. And he answered in like 30 seconds. We were like, what? So I think that bar 
is like set so high. But from people that I know that work on the Elk stack within your organization, it's a pretty healthy, I mean, this could be anecdotal, but they say it's a pretty healthy environment in terms of making sure that people don't burn out. Could you go a little more into that and maybe like uh, other companies can learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just want to say upfront that I'm not interested in plugging Elastic. Um, it sort of speaks for itself but I, and I only represent myself here. But I definitely feel that my concerns about sort of healthy working within the industry, well, they definitely contributed to my choice to join Elastic. So um, I'm guessing a lot of the people listening to this won't know anything about Elastic. So I'll just broadly explain, I guess, what the company does and how how it does it. So Elastic works on a product called, at its core, Elasticsearch, which is a search engine and a whole variety of products that sort of are satellite products around Elastic, around Elasticsearch, sorry. And what makes Elastic sort of unique is that it's a completely remote company, completely distributed, uh, and it has been pretty much from day one. Uh, the details of, of Every single person who was in the company when it was founded, I don't quite remember. But broadly, think of it as the first three people in the company were in three different countries. And pretty much from day one, they said, there's no reason for us to have to be in the same country, not even the same time zone for us to work together. And the company has built itself up that way over the past eight years. And today it spans, I think it's one of the biggest remote companies in the world. I mean, in tech, we're talking about uh, just under 2,000 people who are completely distributed. My team, for example, is across five time zones, I think. So as I'm going to sleep, one of my fellow developers is just getting up and it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. But um, one of the reasons that I actually joined was because I was very intrigued by how a company that is completely distributed is either open source or source available, which we can talk about the difference if people are interested. But broadly, all the development within Elastic, or I'd say like 90x percent of it is done in the open. So Everything is developed like an open source project would be developed. And what that means is that a lot of the working practices that the company has sort of built up and made work for itself over the last eight years, I feel could really contribute to how open source development in general is done. Like I, I was just talking about it with my team lead a while ago, that if I were to start an open source project now and I needed to find a few developers, I know that I could just ping a few people around Elastic who would be happy to contribute to an open source project. And we would work exactly the same way that we work on our core products because we already know how to do it. We already do it. Like everything from managing our products, uh, like our code is in GitHub, obviously. Our um, prioritization is done in GitHub projects. All of our communication is asynchronous, meaning none of us need to be in the same time zone or in the same place. And a lot of the practices that we apply are actually practices that I think the open source community already sort of does, just not in a structured way, the way that we do it within a company. And what that means is that from the perspective of mental health and just sort of healthy working, you can see a huge impact. Because for example, no one's going to tell me to be in the office at 9am. I'm literally in the office right now. I'm in my spare bedroom at home. And uh, I don't need to go into the office, but also I don't need to do a remote stand-up with my other teammates because when 9am is in London, it's, you know, three o'clock somewhere else and 1am somewhere else. And so we're all working in our own hours and sort of fitting work around life rather than life around work. And that helps a lot to sort of achieving that balance. Is this your first position in a remote company or are you pretty, not your first rodeo? 
It is actually my first, uh, and it's been a little bit of a shock to the system. Uh, you know, I've, I've for quite a few years, I've gotten used to getting up in the morning, going into an office, having stand up, you know, working with my teammates, seeing every every single day, seeing the the people that I work with and coding alongside them. Or in my last job, it was a you know XP company, so pair programming the full day, and so going from an environment where you're pair programming every single moment of your workday in very structured hours and shifting to a completely dynamic, completely remote, different hours, a lot more independent work has been quite a sort of shock to the system. But it's it's something that's made me really rethink a lot of the work that we do in general in the industry because it it starts to dawn on you that actually... There is no reason not to do this in most cases. And um, I don't think it's quite, I don't think people have quite realized how impactful it can be in terms of just sort of healthy living and healthy work and building a community that is not just a bunch of people from the same place in the same country. It has a huge impact, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for three years and there are a lot of benefits and there are some downsides. I miss going to a coworker's office and just, you know, shooting the stuff and seeing the look on their face and see if, you know, like, are they mad at me? Are they not mad at me? I, I think that's, that's a lot from what I've talked to with remote employees. That's a big thing is context. Like, oh my God, they, they said something very short in Slack. Instead of it being they're busy, it's, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> you know, you just start going down this like rabbit hole. But, you know, over the years for me, it's been getting better and better. But yeah, and I think also the tool sets are just getting better. Like Slack, you know, I mean, like uh, Zoom, like what we're using right now. Like if you got an invite to Google Hangouts, you you would like go, oh God, seriously? Because it was, it sucked, you know? And now, you know, you have these like tools that are, making it more bearable for remote work. So, I mean, I thought for sure that Elastic was remote and had an office because like, I was like, there's no way a company that big could do it. But GitLab did it, you know, they're a unicorn and they also uh, have a remote only culture. Like they don't have an office at all. I think like all the mail goes to the CEO's uh, house. Like it's, it's pretty insane. But so one thing that you brought up. And I'm really glad you brought up because it is controversial. I didn't want to put you under the gun, but you did say source available. And the reason why I really like this is because your upper, you know, your C-suite gets it. They know it's not open source. They know it's the source is available. The, the, the license is, you know, it allows you to look at the source. So could you go maybe a little more into that, like how it is working on a source available project and maybe how it affects the entire organization in terms of culture? Like what do you do when you do an open source project there? Like what, is there like a certain license you have to choose? Like I would love to like hear your insider take on how licensing is handled within a company with a source available product. Yeah, so I will clarify again that like this is purely my personal perspective on this. I'm not, I haven't had any conversation about this with legal, but the thing in Elastic is it's kind of interesting. So a lot of the controversy around source available doesn't actually relate to companies like Elastic. It's more an open source project that 
felt it had to defend itself from a certain company and did so by switching from open source to source available. Elastic never did that. So Elasticsearch and Kibana and a whole bunch of our other products, I mean, the vast majority of our code is open source and always has been. And uh, I don't have any reason to suspect that it ever will stop being an open source project. Like the, the conversation around open source within the company is one of the healthiest I've ever come across. I mean, when we can definitely talk about like how people contribute to open source in general in the industry and in Elastic and the vibe within Elastic is probably the most pro open source I've ever come across, which is again, one of the reasons I joined. But there was a certain parts of our stack that were always closed source. So parts of Elasticsearch, parts of Kibana. And the closed source products, they were always sort of these independent distributables. So what would happen is when the open source product was released, then that would be one distribution. And you would have a separate distribution that has the open source together with the closed source. And that's what people who were buying the closed source license would essentially be getting. What we do now is within the open source project, there are certain folders that have what used to be closed source and is now source available. So essentially what we've done is we've taken our closed source code and made it source available, but we haven't turned anything that was open source into a more limited license. And there were a whole variety of reasons within the company pushing for this, but um, I feel like a big part of it was all the closed source stuff was not just closed source, it was also developed in what's the opposite of developed in the open? It was developed the way most companies develop. And so everything around our process, everything around our issues, everything around um, you know, our, our product direction and our conversations about why we're building it in a certain way, that was all closed. That was all internal within the company. And there was a feeling that, that this doesn't really align with how we want to work because we like being an open source company. And so the move to making everything open except for the code itself being under a license that again, among other things, protects uh, the company's IP, essentially was a choice to say, okay, we can't afford to make our entire product open source because we won't be able to make a living as a company. But the things that prevent us from developing in the open are not really relevant. So why not open everything that we can and make the source source available product? And for our company, it's worked pretty well because in the end, we're not hiding anything. It was just a sort of attempt to keep our ability to make money and using a license like source available makes that possible. Um, But like I said, it also, it sort of ignores the debate around source available because uh, most of the issues around source available are more about things going the opposite direction, which is open source becoming source available rather than closed source becoming source available. It's like being less limited rather than more limited. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest. I'm not just saying this. When I saw that you were coming on the podcast, I was really excited to have that conversation because I'm a member of the OSI, you know, for multiple years. I, I love the definition. It, it clearly defines what's open source and what's not. And my problem has never, ever been a, with a company having an open core product or, you know, my problem was always stop pretending it's open source. Just call it source available. And it's fixed. So uh, that's, that's definitely exactly, I love, I love your explanation of it because it's so important to know that, you know, there's a lot of bad actors out there that are trying to say, oh, no, no, this is open source. See, you can, you can see the source, but the license is completely incompatible with the definition. So yeah. But as I said earlier, it all starts with at the top, you know, Shy or I'm going to just call him Kimchi because that's how I know him by. He 
instilled those values into the company. And I think a lot of other CEOs that have open core products or consider themselves an open source company can definitely learn from that. And that to me is the key to open source sustainability is licensing and being very upfront with you know customers and and also uh contributors because if you go and swap something you know after someone's like put in all this work and like wait oh wait this is not open source anymore you're you're going to a different license so it's cool that like your executive team understands that Yeah, so I don't actually know where the origin of it is. I mean, I haven't been in the company that long and the company's been around for quite a few years. But it is very interesting to note the, I guess, the approach to open source within the company. So in other companies, if I, uh, for example, was using some kind of third-party library, which is open source, and I feel like a feature is missing there, if I wanted to go and use company time to work on adding a feature there so that we could enjoy it within our core product, I would have to get permission to do that. There would be a lot of pushback. I'd say within the industry as a whole, the um, well, one of the topics that I, I think about a lot is how can we shift that Overton window where companies stop seeing open source as a money loser and more a way of you know investing in that general pool of software because it's going to make us all better. And within Elastic, I haven't experienced that. Like if I feel that I need to add something to a third-party dependency rather than into the core product of Kibana, I don't even need to ask permission. Like I, it doesn't even occur to me that I should need to ask my manager, can I do that? I'll just go and I'll do that and I'll submit that PR. The only downside will be I'm now blocked by the PR process of some third-party project. And if that's a project that's live and breathing and is you know, running sustainably, then that's not a problem. When it's a project that, project that isn't sustainable, that's where the problems are. And that's, you know, that connects back to that big picture of why do we need to talk about sustainability as a, as a community? Because we can't expect companies to really sort of shift into that pro open source space when open source isn't moving at the pace that companies need. But at the same time, we can't expect the open source community to shift without the support of those companies. So how we balance that is, is a really big dilemma. I think I'm, I'm very lucky that I work in an environment where I haven't felt blocked by that. But in most of the companies that I've worked in in the past, it's been the opposite. So that's, that's definitely something I think about a lot. You know, I have quite a few friends who have founded tech companies who have become you know, CTOs or VP engineering in those companies. And they go, I really envisioned my company as being a pro open source company like Elastic, but uh, I can't get my CEO and legal team to support me on this. Like I don't have the backing of the company, even though I'm CTO, I don't have that power. And I know that that's really something that we need as a community to shift because as long as most companies are very guarded about the developer time when it comes to open source, this is not going to change. Just real quick, what license indicates that it is source available? So I'm not sure in the big picture, maybe Justin knows about this a bit more than I do. In the case of Elastic, it is actually a license called the Elastic uh, license. And I know that the legal team went through quite a few cycles of trying to figure out how best to phrase this, especially as the company was going public and like figuring out how to balance the license in such a way that it's going to protect our IP, but also allow us to shift 
uh, our behavior around this source uh, was quite a touchy subject. And the, the license, I know, has gone through a few permeations of trying to figure out exactly how to phrase things, especially from the perspective of the open source community. So the, the community that supports uh, work on Kibana and Elasticsearch goes so far beyond employees of the company. There are so many people in that community that work on these products in their free time. And no one in the company wanted to impact that community in a negative way. Like our goal was to open things up. But of course, within the context of the debate around source available, there was always that danger that some people will misunderstand what's going on there and, and take it badly. And so I know that how that license is actually phrased has been a very tricky subject. But broadly, I think it's been successful. I mean, we have had feedback from the community that has caused us to change things in how that license is presented. Mostly, the, I think the main issue has been that you would have both open source and source available within the same repo. I think at the root of the repo, it says that basically there are two types of licenses here and every single file within the repo has a a license disclaimer at the top that says precisely which one of the two licenses is it. And there's been no case of like taking something that was open source and making it source available, but there have been things that have gone the other way. And the fact that they've been in the same repo has made life much easier, but it's also led to confusion. And I think that was one of the mistakes that that we made early along the way as we were figuring out how to do this was basically, how do we open source things that used to be closed source without people thinking that we're doing the other thing, which is taking open source and making it source available. And I know that there've been quite a few people who thought that was happening when that was never the case. And within the company, there was a lot of debate of how do we actually achieve this? Because there was conversation, uh, uh, I, this is actually before I joined the company, but I'm aware that there was conversations about keeping them in separate repos as well. So that would have made distribution so much harder. It would have made our ability to actually treat these things as the same project very difficult. So a lot of the thought within Elastic about how to balance some of our product being open source and some of it being source available was essentially that debate of how do you have a product that is available to the world to use freely without needing us and without paying us any money, which is good, but also have a product which is good and good enough to warrant the money that goes beyond the open source. And a lot of companies that have both an open source and a closed source product achieve this by having essentially two separate products, one which is a sort of like limited version of the bigger one. And then what ends up happening is those development paths essentially fork and you end up having two different sort of development processes, one for the open source and one for the source available or the closed source. And that leads to a very weird tension within a company because it means that you, you, you find it very hard to decide where to invest your energy. Do you invest it in the open source? Do you invest it in the closed source? And over time, usually what happens is the closed source becomes this really good big product and the open source ends up being this really limited version that no one really wants to use. And that was the last thing that we wanted. I think a lot of the value that we really get out of doing what we do is the fact that we are a large, successful open source project that lots of companies use and lots of organizations use without paying us. And it's just awesome to know that they're in use over there. Like I've heard of a lot of stories ranging from charities to NASA to every single ride-hailing software in the world, apparently. They all use Elasticsearch and A lot of them are using the open source version, which means we're not making any money out of this, but we definitely get a lot of, I guess, reasons to get up in the morning and work on the things that we work because we know our product is being used that way. And if we were to separate the open source from the source available in too distinct a manner, then that wouldn't really work. Like I I find it hard to see us balancing 
doing good work in open source stuff, but it being a different product than our source available stuff. So the distinction really becomes that we put things in source available if we feel that putting them in open source will endanger our ability to be a sustainable business. But at the same time, you wouldn't believe how many conversations there are within the company about, hey, we have this thing. It's currently in source available. Why can't we move it to open source? Like we'd love to move it there. There are people in the open source community who would like to work on it, but can't because it's source available. And that wouldn't have happened in the past because it it was separate products. It was so much more obvious that they were two different things that we just happened to distribute together when we needed to. That culture didn't quite exist as much. And I think as a open source minded company, it's worked really well for us that it's been in the same repo, but that has introduced you know, difficulties when it comes to figuring out how to set up the license and things like that. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you're saying dual licensing, it really streamlines everything. It makes things easier, not just within the organization, but outside the organization. There is some confusion here and there, but majority is pretty well received, the dual licensing model. I mean, broadly, yes, there have been, like I said, a few mistakes that we made along the way learning how to do this. I don't think any company has quite done what we've done. So, you know, like any person doing something for the first time, you do make mistakes. But broadly, I think, yes, it's landed pretty well for us. It's also, I know that it gave a lot of people the opportunity to use parts of our source available stuff that are free. So I think one mistake that a lot of people made was they thought that anything that was source available was actually a paid product. And that wasn't the case. In many ways, a lot of the source available stuff is actually still free. We just keep it under a different license for reasons that aren't about making direct money from our customers. It's more about keeping our ability to compete with other players. But the fact that they're distributed together has definitely made it much easier for people to you know, use parts of our system that they otherwise would have missed. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one big topic that next year at Sustain Summit is licensing. I talked to Gunnar about it and uh, he's he's on board because there's been a lot of controversies around it this in 2019 especially. And I think it's really important that the community, that the sustainers kind of set the tone of, hey, where are we going with this licensing issue? Because that's like the foundation of every project is the license. Can I use this on my in my project? Is it compatible with my uh, corporate structure, or however you want to say it? But yeah, it's a very uh, sticky subject. But it's really cool to see like pioneers such as Elastic and others kind of take this head on because, as you said, at the end of the day. It's got to be a sustainable business. You know, there's shareholders to answer to. This is not some like popular project that comes out of Facebook or whatever that just has unlimited funding. You know, this is the bread and butter of the business. So, yeah, I think that the approach that Elastic has taken is really (laughs) the way that I like it to be. I know there's always going to be people like, well, everything should be open source, but they just don't understand the complexities of, you know, running a business and payroll and all that stuff. So anyway. I was just going to say, I'm not sure it's that they don't understand. It's one of the topics I've, I've thought about a lot, which is the reasons why people believe in open source seems to vary a lot. And it's definitely something also that I've seen shift over time, but there are so many people within our industry who see open source as a sort of ideal and they really want to pursue that ideal. And alongside you have that, you have people who see open source as 
essentially a, a business opportunity in many ways, in the sense that, you know, we use this, this figure of speech a lot of like a rising tide floats all boats. So by us working together within on that tech in an open source manner, we're making everything better across the entire industry. So it's not really about an ideal in a like free software world, but more an ideal of us as professionals, how we want to to sort of lift our community up. And I think the there's a lot of tension when it comes to licensing. There's a lot of tension between those two groups because the people on the more commercial side say, I don't care that the license isn't necessarily the OSI definition of open source. It still gives a lot of things into the industry, such as, uh, lots of opportunities for people to get involved and give feedback on products and give feedback on how things are being developed and learn from the work that other people are doing. And yes, it maybe doesn't quite drive that idealistic perspective of free software for all, but there's a lot of value that we see coming from the other end, which is it's never been this easy to start a business. And there's so much open source products that are available to everyone to pretty much create things that were just not possible 10 years ago. And that's I think that's one of the reasons I got excited about open source in the first place. Yeah. I, I, and also what you're saying, and you, you hit it on the head with uh, licensing and just people of why they're in open source. It's not black and white. There's a spectrum of reasons why people go into open source, whether it is something that they have to do because it's their job or the people that want to do it because they just love it. You know, so it's... Uh, yeah, I, I think that was a really, really good point there. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's interesting to witness somebody who's participating in almost like um, this crazy experiment of complete openness and complete distributed team working cohesively. And again, I know you can't speak for the company, but I am curious, how is it that teams can work so well together asynchronously without real-time communication? How is it that these projects can be done? Is it simply project managers are insanely good and spec out everything properly? Or is, to me, this seems like almost an unattainable scenario for most companies. Can you help me understand that? Yeah, of course. I'm actually really happy you asked that question because I, I'll give you a bit of context to why I actually joined Elastic in the first place. So I sort of touched on it earlier, but my last company was a company that does XP, has been doing XP from day one. We're talking a company that's been around for 13 years. And so for, for people who don't know, XP means you're doing pair programming, which means two developers are sitting at a machine together working on the same code at the same time or mob programming, which means having three developers or even more working on the code at the same time. And a lot of the process within XP is something that is best described as developer-led. So within different companies, you will have a lot of different ways of doing things. You'll sometimes have uh, higher management tell PMs what needs to be done, and PMs then go and write these very detailed specs that are passed down to developers, and developers develop things to that spec and then deliver that to a user and they get feedback via the PM coming to them six months later and saying, oh, our users are really unhappy about this thing that we spec'd out for you a year ago. So that's like the old school classic way of doing things. Within XP, it's the complete opposite. So the, the leadership team will essentially give developers information about what are our goals as a, as a business, but they won't tell them what you need to do. And the PMs don't spec anything out. The PMs are focused mostly on getting 
sort of trying to gather user feedback and context and give and like business context and give that to the developers. But then developers need to take all that and do things like run experiments in production to try and discover what users actually want to do work with users directly, the whole concept of user stories, that all comes from the world of XP. So it's a very developer-led environment. And one of the things we were trying to do was introduce remote work into that environment. It's been the most co-located working environment you can imagine for like 13 years. And so all of the processes within that company were geared towards, we're all in this space together right now. Let's figure out how to build the right software right now as synchronously as possible. It's like the most synchronous environment I've ever worked in. People start the day at the same time because you're pairing. People go to lunch at the same time because you're pairing. People go home at the same time because you're pairing. By the way, it's super healthy because it means that no one stays late and no one comes in early and everyone works very sort of fixed hours. But at the same time, it's the most synchronous thing you can imagine. So when you talk about things like remote work, it's just extremely hard. And we spent quite a while trying to figure out how to introduce remote work. And it I won't say completely failed for us, but it didn't go well. It, it wasn't something that became very successful. Generally speaking, when people work remotely in that company, it's because they're working on something very independent that isn't going into production. So they're not pairing on it. It's maybe a little experiment or they're sitting and learning something, but there isn't proper remote work there. And when I decided it was time to move on, I asked myself, okay, how do I learn how remote is actually done well? Uh, and I started looking around for companies that do remote. And I came across Elastic, which of course I'd heard of, but I didn't know any details about. I had no idea that it's a 2,000-person company that does 100% distributed. And when I saw the scale and the success of the company, I was like, okay, this is a company that clearly knows what they're doing. I should go and learn from them because I clearly don't know what I'm doing. I mean, to, to give a bit more context, I was a manager in the previous company. So a lot of the work I was doing was trying to figure out how to make our process supportive of fully remote work. And so I figured, clearly, I didn't know enough to make it work there. Let's go to a company that does know how to do it and learn from them. And the way that Elastic achieves this is a whole variety of things. But I'd say at its core, just think of it as everything that can be asynchronous needs to be asynchronous. And if you're doing something synchronously, you should always be asking yourself, could we have actually done this asynchronously? Was this a mistake that we decided to do it synchronously? And what you discover is that the vast majority of things that we do can actually be done asynchronously if developers are given the autonomy and the power to make their own decisions. So in a developer-led environment, which was true for my last company and is true for Elastic as well, I have pretty much full autonomy about, I guess, figuring out what I should be working on. And the idea is that PMs help us get context. We have communication with them about broad priorities. But in the end, we take the feedback that we get from our PMs in order to build a prioritization that we, the developers, have decided on. And so we might have a sync-up meeting every you know, few weeks or every month where we make sure that the things that we decided were the highest priority are still the highest priority things. Like We constantly check in on that. But that process can also be asynchronous. A lot of that is conversations. So I'd say 90% of my communication with my team is through GitHub issues and emails. It's not Zoom and it's not Slack. Actually, you know, maybe Slack is 90%, but that's mostly GIFs. So I think that's okay. But I'd say any, anything to do with making decisions has to be, by definition, asynchronous. If you make a decision synchronously, it hasn't been made until you document it in an asynchronous manner. So if you haven't actually written down that decision in a GitHub issue or a GitHub project, then it's going to be forgotten. And people who weren't in that meeting, in that synchronous meeting, won't know about it. And so you might as well not have made that decision. And the way that we actually 
make sure that as the company scales, these things don't get lost in the ether is that we have a something called the communications charter, which is currently internal only, but I'm actively working with our communications team to make it public. Basically, when I joined, like any person being onboarded into the company, I was sent a link to this charter and I read through it and my immediate response was, wow, this is amazing. Why don't we share it with the world? And so I spoke to uh, our head of marketing, uh, not head of marketing, her uh, head of global communications. And she was like, oh, I don't know why we haven't shared it with the world. There is literally no reason not to. Um, So what we've been doing is just sort of stripping out things that are super specific to Elastic, not because we're hiding anything, but just because they won't make any sense. A lot of them were references to like internal jokes and things that only really make sense if you work at Elastic. But this charter essentially lays out our agreements as a community about how we make decisions, how we communicate with each other, how we communicate on pull requests and on issues, and essentially how we prioritize people being able to be involved in the work that the company does without them having to be available at that very moment when you want to have that feedback. And so we bias towards everything being asynchronous. And I think it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's worked pretty well for us. And I think that as long as the company defines that it's a priority for us, that things are asynchronous, then it works. Like I, in my time in the company, I've actually only been at home for about a third of the time. And that's been fine because I've still been working the other third. I've just been traveling. Like I visited friends abroad and I visit family and I move around and it's not a problem because I don't need to be in the same time zone and I don't need to be at home or in the office. As long as I have internet, I can work. And so there's a lot of freedom that sort of comes with being able to work remotely, but there's also an element of essentially not being limited as a company, like there's the freedom of the individual. But what I'm trying to say is that as an organization, we've been able to achieve things that would not have been possible without the remote work. And when I look at the open source community and how projects are run in the open source community in general, it's pretty much the same thing. Like every open source project I've ever been involved in, I don't think, you know, I grew up in Israel. I now live in the UK. So in neither of these countries have I ever actually had the fellow contributors to an open source project that I'm working on in the same country as I've been when I've been working on them. As in, most of them are in the US or in random places around the world. And so it's always asynchronous. It's always remote. And if you have more people who work the way that Elastic does, then developers will obviously feel much more comfortable working in that environment when they're working on open source as well. So I think broadly, if we as a community adopt these ways of working, you're going to find a big change in how people can actually get involved in open source because it won't be as alien to them. Like there's a lot of things that are just the same, but when you're you're used to working synchronously and you're used to working in an office and having your coworkers sitting the desk next to you, it obviously is very different than when you're working on open source. And so I I just feel like if we close that gap, it would make a big difference for us as a community. I was mesmerized. I I love (laughs) hearing you explain that. We got to start wrapping up as much as I just want to keep talking, but we got to wrap it up. Eric, do you want to take it over? I want to say the same thing. Uh, Giddy, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like this is just the beginning of the conversation. I think that what you've alluded to towards the end there really will translate well to the governance of open source projects. I'm extremely eager to read that document that you know and love. Ditto. And uh, hopefully we can see that soon enough. Uh, Definitely, hopefully by the Sustain event in February of 2020. January 30th. January 30th. Yes. Oh, my bad. January 30th. (laughs) All righty. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm working on getting the document out and I'm just going to say, if anyone listening to this has not been to a sustained event, you should definitely go. If only just to see Gunner in action. But yeah, it's <laughs> definitely one of my favorite conferences that I've ever been to. We didn't pay him to say that. Yeah. We'll send you the money, but via PayPal. <laughs> Gunner's currently at 30,000 feet right now, but he did wish you the best on this. So with our podcast, what we're doing every podcast is we share an open source project or library that has provided value or an impact to our personal career or our life. The goal behind this is to draw attention and show gratitude for those projects and the maintainers that are doing that. I'll go ahead and start. I'd like to spotlight a project written by Eric Rasmussen. Now, Eric Rasmussen is a friend of mine. He's an insanely talented JavaScript developer. He's built uh, a tool called Redux Form. And recently, he rewrote the whole thing from the ground up and made it not reliant on Redux or even on React anymore uh, called Final Form. And you can get the Final Form by going to final-form.org. But Eric is just a solo developer who just loves to build and share open source projects that he builds. And you can also hear a podcast interview with him on another friend of mine's podcast, Ken C. Dodds. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but that's the, the project that I'd like to spotlight. Uh, Justin, how about you? Uh, I'm going to spotlight uh, Laravel Charts. It's the missing Laravel charting library. The link will be in the description. Now, the reason I chose this is not because I, I know Eric, uh, the author, but I think back when I first was starting with uh, programming, I was, I was terrible, but I was a PHP programmer. If I had this when I started, I think I would have stuck with programming, but yeah, it just uh, wasn't the right timing, I guess. But yeah, that Laravel charts, you can just Google it and then it, it's the first result. Awesome. Giddy, how about you? So I'm going to start with an apology. I don't really have a project to uh, plug. I I was really trying to think of one and it just felt weird. There's so many open source products and projects that I use every day and it feels like singling any one of them out just feels wrong. Uh, so instead, I'm going to plug a charity, which I really, really like. And it feels kind of relevant because uh, it's actually founded by a developer. So it's a charity called Beam, B-E-A-M. Uh, and it was founded by a guy called uh, Alex. He's a uh, developer here in London who, who basically had a sort of epiphany a couple of years ago. He was, you know, there are quite a few rough sleepers around London and uh, he was coming across quite a few of them over time and giving them money and feeling like I'm doing my little bit, but it's never enough. And a couple of years ago, he just had this realization that he has skills that he can use to try and get better support for rough sleepers. And what he did was he created a, a website, which is essentially a crowdsourcing website, where the idea was he would collect money for a specific rough sleeper in order to help them get training for a real job. And over time, this has become a full-on charity. There's now multiple people working in this charity. And essentially what happens is you put money in every month and it goes towards a very specific uh, rough sleeper. And you actually get to see them as they progress from being supported in, they start by connecting them with social workers and then getting them into basic, uh, like connecting them with a certain basic training that they want for a certain profession that they want and supporting them throughout the whole process of gaining real employment and lodgings and, and just a safe place to live. And it's just a really, really great charity that I feel really, really connected to. And I, I haven't mentioned this, but I'm quite involved in the uh, ethics community within London that's focused on how we use tech for ethical 
so it's like the mix of ethical things and tech for good. And so this uh, charity was something that I became aware of through the developers in that conference. And so um, I just felt it was definitely worth mentioning uh, and supporting. That's fantastic. And you can find that at beam.org. Uh, Giddy, where can people find you online? Uh, in a bunch of places, but I'd say the, the if you're into a, a healthy mix of tech and politics, uh, then you can find me on uh, Che Kofif. So that would be C-H-E-K-O-F-I-F, which is like Che like Che Guevara and Kofif like monkey. It's just a Hebrew word for saying a small monkey. So I'll just say I did not come up with that myself, but somehow it stuck. So I'm like your socialist monkey, basically. <laughs> Well, perfect. Love it. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, sharing the the backstory for for your burnout and for basically how things have become so much better in that time. I believe I can speak for Justin as well, where we are extremely excited to see you at Sustain next year yep. on January 30th. And thank you all for listening. We're, we'll see you next week. 